Welcome to Brightline Living, the official podcast of Brightline Eating, where we focus on living a life free from food obsession and filled with peace and unstoppability. Each week, Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson, New York Times bestselling author and founder of Brightline Eating, will cover topics ranging from food addiction to fascinating science and how to live a bright life. Now here's Susan with the audio version of this week's blog. Hey there, it's Susan Pierce Thompson, and welcome to the weekly vlog. So this week I want to talk about food addiction and some questions or pushback that sometimes people ask or have uh, or engage in when the topic of food addiction comes up. And food addiction is a big subject in my third book that's coming out. Uh, I think pub date is December 28th, 2021. This book is co-authored with the fabulous Everett Considine. And uh, in my portion of the book, I talk a lot about food addiction. I talk about how real food addiction is. And sometimes people ask things like, you know, well, you don't mean all food, right? Why are you calling it food addiction? Which is a very good question. And then other people will say food can't be addictive. That's ridiculous. That's like saying air addiction or something like you have to breathe air. You have to eat food, water addiction, food addiction doesn't make any sense. You're taking a biological necessity and claiming it, claiming that it can be addictive. That's ridiculous. So I want to address those kinds of comments. First of all, the second kind of comment comes from a certain strain of thinking that I I want to explain the origins of. And I explain this in my book, Resume is the name of the book that's going to be coming out December 28th. Um, In the book, I talk about the history of thinking of food and the psychology of food a particular way. So if you don't know, I used to teach a college course on the psychology of eating. So I'm well familiar with the history in psychology of different ways of thinking about food and eating. In the 1970s, bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa came on the scene as diagnosed eating disorders. And the treatment of eating disorders burgeoned as sort of a sub area of psychology, clinical psychology. And in graduate level uh, curricula uh, in um, fields like uh, counseling psychology, clinical psychology, eating disorders, um, uh, licensed clinical social workers, those sorts of fields people started to get educated about how to treat people with eating disorders. And the the zeitgeist, the ethos at the time, was an approach based on not having any food rules. Uh, Anorexics and bulimics often have a lot of food rules, like they develop um, rules around their eating through their eating disorder. and often will eliminate whole categories of foods, will um, have all co- a- any number of rules, right? Only eating a certain number of calories, only eating at certain times of day, only eating whatever the rules are, right? But the first kind of rule of thumb is no food rules, no food rules. This got so extreme that 
um, in treatment centers, um, like inpatient treatment centers for eating disorders, the common practice was to, to not let anyone be vegetarian, certainly not vegan, but no vegetarianism. So someone who came in with an ethical objection to eating meat uh, would have to eat pork, beef, la- lamb, veal, you know, night after night after night, no exceptions. And people who had developed health rules around food, um, like maybe not eating sugar, um, had to eat um, cupcakes, cookies, pies, pastries, um, sometimes multiple times a day. And if they refused those foods, they were considered extremely eating disordered and would lose privileges in the token economies that were set up in these um, facilities to reward patients. They would lose privileges um, for not eating the cake or whatever. Um, and they couldn't swap it out for an apple. There were no options. It was like they were not allowed to have any food rules. So um, the idea, I guess, was to um, try to get these folks to eat like normal eaters, right? To eat all foods in moderation, in ample quantities, just to eat like normal eaters. I mean, the irony is that was 1970s. Um, a lot of that still still is how it's handled, to be honest. And um, there's a sort of um, derivative, like sort of great-granddaughter sort of approach to eating um, these days, which is the sort of competent eating movement or the intuitive eating movement, um, which is really about eating all foods, but listening to your body and trying to like restore yourself back to your natural rhythms. So it's from those, um, uh, approaches that you'll hear people say things like, uh, food addiction doesn't make any sense. It's like saying water addiction or air addiction. Now, on the other sort of uh, side of things, you've got people who study addiction in the brain, like myself, um, who just look at brain scans and go, well, food addiction is real. It's right there on the brain scan. Like there's the dopamine downregulation. I can circle it for you on a PET scan. Um, like it's the addict- addiction reward pathways in the brain. And what happens when someone's addicted is their dopamine receptors uh, become downregulated and you can see it on a brain scan. So we know that food addiction exists. It's, it's unambiguous. And I just want to show you a couple of books here because I want to, in this vlog, introduce a distinction that I think is really interesting and it helps address that other comment that I brought up in the um, beginning of this vlog. Um, and let me just show you a couple of, a couple of these books. So here's a, this is a college level textbook right here. Processed Food Addiction foundations, assessment, and recovery. So the comment from the beginning of the blog, the other comment is, um, you don't mean food addiction. Are you saying that all foods are addictive? Don't you mean like something more like processed food addiction, right? So this textbook here, processed food addiction, foundations, assessment, and recovery, Processed Food Addiction Foundation, and there's so many citations in this book. Like, you know, I I don't know if you can see, but here's just, you know, at at the end of every chapter, they give the citations and there's just, you know, pages and pages of citations, pages of citations. So anyway, so like when people say there's no evidence for food addiction, it's like, well, um, there is actually a lot of evidence for food addiction. Here's a second textbook. 
compulsive eating behavior and food addiction, emerging pathological constructs, compulsive eating behavior and food addiction. Now, do you see the difference in these titles? Processed food addiction, compulsive eating behavior and food addiction. So that question, you don't mean food addiction. Don't you mean like not all foods are addictive, right? Okay. So I've never talked about this in a vlog before. Unique in the addiction world, food straddles a very interesting line. It's the line between substance addictions like you know, cocaine addiction, heroin addiction, cigarette addiction, nicotine addiction, caffeine addiction, etc. right? Substance addictions, things you're consuming, substances you're taking into your body, ingesting, and process addictions, gambling, shopping, internet gaming, watching pornography, right? sex addiction. These are process addictions. Food counts as both. Food counts as both. It's a substance addiction, the processed food addiction, right? Donuts, a substance that you're consuming made just like drugs, taking the inner essence of these plants and refining and purifying down into the fine white powders, then putting it into these industrial machines. 56% of the calories that people in the United States are consuming right now, 56% of the calories are heavily processed, industrial, manufactured foods. They're not, they're, they don't grow out of the ground at all. They're made of industrial products. And on the other hand, there's eating. The behavior of eating. Process addictions involve processes that are inherently so rich and so rewarding, so stimulating that they can be addictive. The process itself, because the brain releases its own slew of chemicals that we get hooked on, cued by stages in the process that trigger the brain to release its own cocktail of chemicals that we get addicted to. And eating does that. I have known people, food addicts, who would stand in the kitchen all day and compulsively, addictively eat heads of iceberg lettuce and mushrooms. This was someone with, you know, also an eating disorder, a restrictive eating disorder who would binge, but because she wouldn't allow herself very many calories, she would binge on, you know, iceberg lettuce and mushrooms and, you know, celery sticks and things like that and eat pounds of these things, pounds and pounds and pounds, gobbling them down, meeting the clinical definition of a binge, eating way more food than a normal person would eat, way faster and with a subjective feeling of being out of control and then having a lot of shame about it afterwards, a binge. So interestingly, when we talk about food addiction here in Bright Line Eating, it's a little ambiguous. Are we talking about all food addiction, right? Like all foods could potentially be addictive or sugar and flour addiction, the substance addiction piece. A couple of, a couple more nuances about that. 
One is that I believe, I believe the development of food addiction starts from the, the exposure to processed foods. I think that, um, and I don't know this for sure. I don't have any hard data on this, but I think in the absence of any processed foods in the food environment, no one would be addicted to food. I know from, uh, you know, hard evidence, I know that once a brain has been wired up to be addicted to food, after that, Foods that are not processed, particularly like honey, for example, can absolutely be triggering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nuts, honey, all kinds of things, right? Interestingly, nuts are on the Bright Line Eating food plan. They don't work for everybody, but they work for a lot of people. Um, the boundary between what, what's an addictive food and not an addictive food is not always that clear. Nuts. There's a great example right there. Cheese you know, quesomorphins and cheese. That's a little addictive, you know. And um, yeah, some people, especially if they melt the cheese, you know, uh, eat, you know, are finding they need that. They count it for their fat now in bright line eating, um, you know, at every meal. Okay, so I believe that you need the processed foods to become addicted. But once your brain has been addicted, uh, it sort of uh, makes potentially problematic, all manner of other foods that otherwise would have been fine, like honey, right? It's just too bad. It's just too bad. Honey's a natural food. I get it. It's not processed. I get it. Um, but it's triggering. So it's not on the bright line eating food plan. So just a little bit more in this week's vlog about what we mean when we say food addiction in bright line eating, we're not really making a distinction We're we're kind of, we're like, yep, Yep. Food addiction. Yep. Substance addiction, process addiction, all that. Cause we got to manage all of it, right? doesn't matter to us. There's some of that in the mix and there's some of that in the mix and we need, you know, a solution that's potent for all of it, right? We also in Bright Line Eating talk a lot about the gradations. It's not a binary construct, food addiction. You either are a food addict or you're not a food addict. There's the susceptibility scale from one to 10 and there's gradations in the mix. Someone who's a six or a seven on the susceptibility scale might not qualify for full-blown food addiction on the Yale, you know, food addiction scale. They wouldn't qualify for full-blown food addiction. Are, if you're curious, are nines and tens qualify for food addiction on the Yale food addiction scale? Are nines and tens. Um, so anyone who's lower than that technically doesn't qualify for food addiction, but they've got enough food addiction on board to make it really problematic for them to get their food straight and take off their excess weight without a solution like bright line eating, right? So it's a continuum. It's a gradation. It's not an either or proposition. So, uh, food addiction is nuanced. Uh, I think very, very, very deeply about it. And, um, you know, in bright line eating, we have food rules because they serve us. No sugar, no flour. It's freeing. We're not giving up categories of food like carbohydrates or vegetables. We're giving up processed industrial, you know, Franken foods that shouldn't be plaguing our food system in the first place. We don't eat them, right? But we eat all whole real foods. Ah. <sighs> 
That's the weekly vlog. So exciting to talk about food addiction. It's a, it's a very, very interesting subject. Food counts as both substance and process addiction. That's the weekly vlog. I'll see you next week.